You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We've talked about it a little bit, but the anticipation of the big day is but a memory. It's crazy. The gifts have all been unwrapped. We've fulfilled all of our family traditions. All that remains is for the tree to be taken down and all the decorations to be put away. Just questioning, asking, how many of you have already put your tree out on the curb? Anybody? Couple? Okay, couple people. How many of you are like, no, we're going to keep it up as long as we pop? Oh, I knew it would be you, Haley. Nice. The point is that for, for many of us, Christmas ends on December 25th. And it's just the return back to normal life. But we really shouldn't move so fast. Because what most people don't acknowledge are the 12 days of Christmas. And if you don't know, those are more than just words in a song. This is actually a a space of time set apart within the church, established way back in the Middle Ages, to stop us from moving on so fast from this holy season. And instead, to keep celebrating Christmas. To continue to ponder the stunning reality of who has been born unto us. And as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, you're going to notice today the writer of this letter has the same goal in view, of keeping our attention on Jesus. Before we dig in, let me just give you a brief recap. If you haven't been with us before or haven't been with us in a while, the original recipients of this letter were a Hellenistic Jewish Christian community. And what that means is these were Jews who followed the way of Moses, but saying Hellenistic, they had also adopted Greco-Roman practices. They also had come to follow Christ, but they were experiencing increasing persecution and therefore being both pressured and tempted to embrace a diminished, less contentious view of who Jesus is. And so the primary goal of the writer of this letter is to encourage them not to lose sight, but instead to fix their eyes on Jesus, on the absolute distinctiveness and superiority of Jesus Christ. In the first two chapters, the focus specifically has been on the incarnation, the very centerpiece and reason for our observance of Christmas. In chapter one, it's argued Jesus is more than, greater than, better than any human prophet or heavenly angel, because Jesus is the son of God, God incarnate, that is, made flesh. God come down to earth to be with us in Jesus Christ. And in chapter two, the implications of this incarnation, the incarnation, what God does for us in Jesus Christ are laid out. We looked at this specifically on Christmas Eve, if you were with us. Jesus comes as our brother in arms to be the pioneer of our salvation, leading us into the kind of life that we were meant for becoming the best version of ourselves, all we were created to be. And Jesus blazes this trail for us by serving as our liberator from sin, death, and the devil, as well as our high priest, our cleaner, in terms of both the stain and the consequence of our shared disobedience, our rejection and rebellion against our creator and his will for our lives. And with all of this, keeping all of this in mind, the writer now with chapter three kicks off a new thought. Let's read it together. He writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge 
as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Continuing along this theme of distinctiveness, the distinctiveness of Christ that I mentioned earlier, the writer here asserts now, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, for a primarily Jewish community, even being Jewish Christians, this is a huge thing to say because Moses, as you, we all know, was the ultimate authority. His life and his ministry as one called by the Lord, Moses was, for the, the people of Israel, the figure of the law, the Torah, the way that God gave to his people. However, in saying this, the writer is not being dismissive of the significance of Moses. What is being, is, is what's being asserted, what the writer is trying to make clear, is that Moses merely set the stage for the one whose life and ministry would deliver the fulfillment of the law, the gospel. The writer is declaring, in other words, Jesus is the one Moses anticipated. And Moses, way, way back, spoke of one who would come after him, who would be the one to fulfill all things that God had promised. Jesus himself, Jesus himself in one of his many heated exchanges with the Pharisees said the very same thing when he argued about the one whom Moses wrote about. He said, Moses wrote about me. You're not, believe, you're not following Moses if you don't believe in me. But there's no need in what the writer's trying to do here to choose sides because what he's, again, trying to say is that it's all been pointing to Jesus Moses was a true, he's affirmed as a true and faithful servant in God's house. But Jesus, again, don't miss sight of this, he's saying, has been revealed as God's son, the one who oversees God's house, the one Moses wrote about, the one Moses was looking for. And this image, and that's what I really want to key in on today, this image of building a house is a new one in this letter, but it's a common visual reference throughout the Bible for describing our relationship with God in terms of house building. And perhaps the most memorable example of this image of building a house that we all probably are thinking of right now is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus concluded that, that message by contrasting the image of a house built on the sand and a house built on the rock. According to Jesus, the house built on the rock reflects a life constructed upon the foundation of one's relationship, one's discipleship, one's following of Christ. Whereas the house built on the sand reflects a life built or established upon something or someone else, a different base. Now, this image of building a house, and especially because we associate it with the end of the Sermon on the Mount, most of us hear this image or see this image of, of our lives in, with God about being, building a house as being something that's about us, that this house construction, this building project is on us. You know, we hear this parable and we, we, the way we walk away from it is, well, Christ has given us all the materials we need through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Christ has provided us with the blueprint and the work instructions by following his example and his teachings. And the call, therefore, is for us to build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus accordingly. But what the writer offers us here in this letter is an important and critical clarification 
of our understanding of how and by whom the house God has in mind is to be built. And I don't know if you were listening carefully when we read that section of chapter 3, but here it is again. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses because he's the builder of the house. And every house, it said, is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything, and we are his house. What the writer is clarifying for us, and it's an important clarification, is we don't build the house of the Lord. God builds the house. God came down in Christ to build his house, to make his home among his children. That's the whole point of the incarnation. And truth be told, this really is not a new revelation, even though we often miss it. This is, Christmas is not something new. It's the fulfillment of a promise going all the way back again to Moses. And in order for us to fully appreciate this, this aspect of a promise that God makes that we often miss, we often mess up, we're going to kind of have a quick overview of a lot of biblical history in a short span of, of time. We're going to go all the way back to that moment when the Israelites were liberated from slavery in Egypt. After the exodus from slavery in Egypt, before the Israelites began their journey to the promised land, the Lord had set up for them a stop at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, you'll remember, the people encountered the presence of God through the manifestation of smoke and fire, as well as the voice of the Lord coming down from the rumbling of the mountain. And after a shaky start to their relationship, God assures the Israelites through Moses that his presence will not remain on that mountain, but that he, the Lord, will go with them to the promised land. And you'll remember God reveals to Moses that a portable temple known as the tabernacle or the tent of meeting will house his presence on their journey. And chapter after chapter in the Torah describes the exact instructions for constructing this tabernacle. And at the inaugural dedication of this tent, and only there God's glory fills it. What happens is God gives his people a visual aid that he is with and for them. Hold on to that language because it's language we use at Christmas time. A visual aid that he is with and for them. And as they journey along, the tabernacle, you might remember this, is always erected right in the middle of the tribes and the clans of Israel, right in the center of camp. And this is to reflect that the Lord's presence is not just to be perceived as in their midst, but rather the Lord's presence is to be understood as the center of their lives. The key takeaway, in other words, is that it's not about the building. It's about the relationship. In other words, it's not the tabernacle per se, this tent that they're able to carry around that distinguishes Israel from all the other nations of the world. It is the Lord's presence with and for them, dwelling among them that makes them stand apart. But the people miss this and we miss this. We get caught up in the building. We get caught up in believing we have to build the house of the Lord. And again, this is not the, we're not the only ones to miss this. 450 years after God gave the Israelites the schematics for this portable housing of the tabernacle, the people are now, 450 years later, finally settled and unified in the promised land under King David. And with the best of intentions, do you remember this story? David de desires to honor God, best of intentions to honor God by building a more permanent structure, an actual house for God, a temple for the Lord. But do you remember what happens? The Lord initially negates this request. If you remember this story, the Lord basically tells David, I never asked you or anyone else to build me a house. 
I am not a God who seeks to be contained or rooted to one place. I am the God who is on the move. That portable mobile tent I designed and occupied was not for my benefit or comfort, but as an assurance for your ancestors, as a visible sign to the nations. God didn't ask for a house. But despite all this, the Lord agrees to dwell with Israel in a temple. A temple, you'll remember, not constructed by David, but by his son Solomon. Through the design plans revealed by God to David, King Solomon constructs this temple, and the, this temple in Jerusalem, and dedicates it accordingly. And when Solomon finishes praying, it's one of those awesome moments in the Old Testament, dedicating this building. One says, just as before, back in the time of Moses, fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Once again, we're seeing it repeat. Once again, the temple in, the, in Jerusalem becomes the hub of Israel's life and witness. Once again, the Lord offers his people a constant visible sign of being with and for them. Once again, the people become more focused on the building, the presence of the temple, rather than their relationship, the presence of the Lord among them. And several hundred years later after that, about 600 BC, everything falls apart. And everything falls apart from the people's neglect of their relationship with the Lord, from their disregard and outright disobedience against God's direction for their lives. The people, however, never see it coming. They never believe it's possible because the temple was still standing. But first, it happens. The kingdom splits in two. And then the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel fall as God allows first the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians to take the Israelites away from the promised land, their promised land, into exile. Jerusalem is ransacked. The temple is demolished. However, in the midst of Israel's exile, prophets sent from the Lord tell the Israelites that they will once again be restored to their land and enjoy the presence of God in their midst. And sure enough, some 70 years later, through God's miraculous provision, the Israelites return to their homeland. From the people's vantage point, the first order of business in returning home is to rebuild the temple, the symbol and dwelling place of God's presence. And with the few resources the Israelites have, they do so. But if you remember this part of the story, it doesn't work out so well. Because once completed, the rebuilt temple is but a shadow of what once was. When they dedicate the new temple, just as Solomon did, nothing happens. There's no cloud, there's no glory, there's no filling with God's presence, nothing. And this is extremely disappointing, but again, the focus is on the building rather than on the relationship. But God persists. Their disappointment is countered by messages from the Lord through prophets that seek to clarify both the people's expectations but also to refocus their understanding. Through prophets like Joel, the Lord points to another future dwelling still to come. And this is not something new. This is not a new revelation. The prophets, God through the prophets is pointing back to something God promised all the way back to David when David got lost in all that excitement for the first temple. And I intentionally didn't talk about this to wait for this moment because if you look back to that moment when David, with the best of intentions, wanted to build a house for God and God said, did I ask you to build me a house? God, while accommodating David's request, promises something even better, something even more extraordinary. Instead of David building something for the Lord, anything for the Lord, the Lord tells David, I'm going to build you a house, a house 
that will last forever. Rooted in this promise to David, the prophets after the exile speak of a future temple that would eventually be built even more glorious than the one Solomon had constructed. What God was going to build through the coming of the Messiah and the filling of the Holy Spirit would be a house for all nations, a house with many rooms, room enough for all, prepared for all God's children, a house that would never fall. And so we fast forward a few centuries to Jesus. The Messiah has come. Jesus is crucified and resurrected. And with his victorious ascent into heaven, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus' original disciples at Pentecost. And through the, the story of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, we witness the disciples picking up right where Jesus left off. As they speak with the power of God's word, as people are being healed, as many, both Jew and Gentile, are believing and following Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, it soon becomes apparent that God's presence is once again among his children, but in a more, even more dramatic way than has ever been experienced in the history of God's people. And while the presence of God among his people becomes undeniable, many Jews, like the original recipients of this letter, probably wondered, what about the temple? If Jesus was the Messiah, why is there no temple, no new temple? And the truth be told, Many Jews, most Jews during the time of Jesus still perceived the temple that God had promised to be the one that was built the second time to replace the first one, the one that by the time of Jesus had been further enhanced by Herod the Great. But the interesting thing is, as you read the Gospels, Jesus never validates this perception. In fact, he rejects it. This is one of the reasons, clearly stated in Scripture, that many reject Jesus and outright seek his death because he does not validate the temple. No, Jesus consistently points to something different, something the Father was building through him. And this is one of the more significant implications of Christmas, of the incarnation, of God coming down to be with us as a human being. What Jesus points to, as John puts it in the first chapter of his gospel, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that language is very intentional, tabernacled among us. With the coming of Christ, God was done with housing his presence in physical structures crafted by humankind, buildings made of wood, stone, or brick. With the coming of Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas, God made his home, his presence, within human flesh and bone. But Jesus only served as the cornerstone of what God sought to build. Jesus was the anchor point, the head, the foundation around and upon everything else would be built. The rest of the house, the new temple that God promised to build first to David and then through the prophets would be built out of people. Through the giving and filling of the Holy Spirit, those who belong to and follow Christ were to become the new temple. The radical continuation of the incarnation is not just God with us and for us. That would be enough. God with us and for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The radical continuation of the incarnation is God's presence dwelling within us. Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. This is what the first followers of Jesus came to understand about their own identity. That's why when you continue to read the New Testament, not just here but elsewhere, writers like Peter and Paul speak of us being living stones, 
of a house made not by human hands, of being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, of recognizing that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us. Beloved, this quick survey of biblical history has been to reinforce what the writer of this letter is going to continue to unpack. We are not the builders of the house of the Lord. We are the house the Lord promised to build, the house Jesus is building. We do not build houses or temples for God. Jesus showed quite clearly those kind of building projects have ended. In negating the significance of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus invalidated all religious strongholds that humanity builds. No, Jesus is crafting us through our bodies, through our lives, into the house of the Lord. We can't cause God's house to grow and come together. We can only yield to the building work the Lord is doing both in and through us. And that is a profound, subtle but profound shift. There's nothing we can do to build this temple. For we are the building materials. We are the living stones, becoming by the grace of God the dwelling place of the Lord where Jesus can be found. Or what is otherwise known as the church. The implications of all this are many. But let's just talk about a couple real quick. And first is if we understand this correctly, if we understand this rightly, contrary to how we often speak and act in regard to the church, and this is prevalent, but contrary to how we often speak and act to the church, the church is not a voluntary organization. The church is not a voluntary organization. We do not choose to join or participate in the church. And yet, many of us, that's our orientation. We choose to join or participate in the church. And many in our day and age, for good reason, lots of bad things have happened, have said, hey, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus, but I'm not going to have anything to do with the church. You have no biblical basis for that kind of lifestyle. We do not choose to join or participate in the church. We are chosen by the Holy Spirit to become part of the church. Another way to say this, being the church isn't part of our lives, and many of us talk that way too. Yeah, part, the church is part of my life, and then I've got this going on, and that going on, and this and that. No, being the church isn't part of our lives, and then there's everything else. Being the church is what our lives in Christ are all about. We are truly part of something larger than ourselves. Many of us long for that. Some of us run from it. But we are truly part of something larger than ourselves. Everything God is doing in and through our lives is a part of his promised building project. Creating a home where the Lord can reside. Crafting a dwelling place where he, the Lord, can be seen and found by others. Again, despite how many, and, many, and it's piling up, many Christians functionally live today, there is no biblical vision of belonging to Jesus, of following Christ, and not being connected to the church. That being said, and part of the reason why many choose or think they can choose to not be part of the church is because we who call ourselves the church have gotten a lot wrong about what it means to be the church. The inside of this passage also reinforces that what God is constructing is not a physical nuts and bolts edifice, but a relationship. The church 
is not this. It's not what we're doing. The church is a community of faith. It's a large, diverse, complex, varied company of people bound together by the word and the spirit and unified, held together by Christ. Another way to say this, what makes the church is not an address. Just because you have an address doesn't mean you're the church. What makes us the church is not accumulating or acquiring property that we occupy and keep well-equipped and maintained. What makes us the church is not possessing a strong budget, offering large quality programs, or being really friendly and sociable. What makes us the church is not even holding regular worship services that are numerous and well-attended. All that is the stuff we try to build for God. But it's not about that. It's about what the Lord is building in and through us. What makes us the church is the word of God, the movement of the spirit working upon us, building us up to be sent to go out into the world just like Jesus. Interesting thing, Jesus didn't hang out much in the temple. That was a big sticking point too. If Jesus is the Messiah, why isn't he coming to Jerusalem? If Jesus is the Messiah, why isn't he spending more time in the temple? The temple is where it's at. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem or in the temple. Jesus was on the go. Because Jesus, as he continually said, was sent by the Father to go. Following him, following Christ, is how Jesus builds his church. It's not about the gathering and the staying as awesome as this is, and I love it too, it's not about the gathering and the staying. It's about the going and the serving of others. The call is what makes us the church. Not our choice, but the call is what makes us the church. And it's not the call to go to heaven. That's not the call I'm talking about. Being the church is not the call to, hey, get on board, get on the heaven train. The call to be the church, the call that makes us the church is not the call to go to heaven, we're not the managers or gatekeepers of a religious organization. No, as the writer expresses it right here in this letter, we are brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. It's not the call to go to heaven, it's the call from heaven to reflect heaven, to reflect the goodness of Jesus into the lives of others. That is what makes us the church. Now, some of you are really paying attention always. And I always think about you. Some of you have been following along and maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but then there's that last verse that we read that you're going to go, but wait a second. And if you don't remember that last verse, it'll come up here on the screen. And we are his house. It'd be great if it was a period right there, right? But it says, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory, does this last verse undercut everything that I've just explained? what I perceive the word of God to be saying? Does this if used here imply that our state as part of the house Jesus is constructing is somehow conditional? And if it is, that, that means that our building work for Christ is what counts, what the work we do, rather than Jesus' building work in and through us? And I'm gonna push back and say no. The building project does not ride on us. It does not ride on our work or our effort. We are not the builders. As said earlier in this passage, God is the builder of all things. 
And biblically, we are repeatedly given the assurance that all that the Lord builds is good and that every good work God begins, he will bring to completion in Christ Jesus. This is not a conditional statement as much as it is a logical observation. We have phrases that speak very much what I think the writer is getting at here. When we say things like, home is where our heart is. Home is wherever we lay our head. Where we reside is where we are living. A house divided against itself cannot stand. The work of building the house belongs to Jesus. But we have to choose to live at home. We have to choose to live at home. To daily yield, to regularly repent and submit to the work the Lord is doing in and through us. God is building the house of our lives. And after the Lord begins a good work, he keeps going. But are we living at home? That's the question for us today. Are we living at home? Or another way, if that doesn't work for you, who is building your house? Are we inviting competing builders to work on this one house that we are being made into? Again, another way of reflecting on this is to ask, what or whom am I choosing for my formation? Are we even aware of the accidental formation that can happen in our lives if we don't pay attention? Hence, the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Are we even aware of the accidental formation when we just go with the flow? Let's get real. Who or what builds our thoughts about politics? I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. We've got a major problem, not just in this country, but more importantly in this church. Too many of us who follow Jesus have our politics inform our faith. And that is backwards. It is our faith. It is our relationship with Christ that informs our politics. Whom or what informs your thoughts about politics? A particular news network? A party line? Or the teachings and character of Christ? And when you rub up against it and feel the need to classify Jesus as a Republican or a Democrat, you're going the wrong way. What or whom builds our attitudes towards power? Sex and money, whatever feels good, whatever we want, power is decided by what we want, power, sex, decided by what we think is okay, money is about whatever we feel is that we're entitled to, whom or what forms our attitudes towards power, sex, and money, whatever we feel, whatever we want, or the witness and example of Jesus, whom or what builds our practices for running a business if we run a business, or for being an employee if we work for a business, for being a citizen or being a neighbor? Is our practice in these areas of our lives about what we feel we deserve? Is that what dictates our, our practices, what we feel we deserve? What we've decided is our level of responsibility. This is as far as I'm willing to go. This is what I think I'm, I'm entitled to or I'm supposed to do. Or is our practice of being a neighbor, being a citizen, a boss, or an employee, being set by the standard of love and grace modeled and set by Jesus? Whom or what builds our beliefs about what it means to be successful? We all want to be successful. We all want our lives to count. 
We all want to accomplish things, but who or what builds our beliefs about what it means to be successful? Is what we value or aim for about being shaped by our selfish pride, our vain ambition? Are we being driven by a need to achieve, to throw our weight around, to gain validation, or to gain the approval of others? Or are we living, is our definition of success, what success how success is defined, based upon living out of confidence in who we are in Christ, in all that we have in Christ? With what or with whom? What or whom is building our actions in terms of how we treat others? We interact with people every day. Who or what is building our actions in terms of how we engage with others, especially those whom we dislike or with whom we disagree? Is the impulse and justification for our culture of outrage and retaliation, and that is the world more and more we're living in, a culture of outrage. We're all outraged. We're all mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. And we're all going to get them before they get us. Who or what is building our relationship with other people, especially people we don't like, especially people we don't agree with? The attitude of I'm going to get them better than they got me, or is it the mercy and forgiveness of God in Christ extended to us when we were still enemies and not yet friends? Guys, invited or uninvited, acknowledged or unacknowledged, we all have builders. Who are we inviting to build, allowing to build our lives? We are not the builders, but we must continue to live at home in the home, in the house the Lord is building because guys, all we have going for us, and when you strip it all away, all we have going for us is Jesus. All we have going for us is Jesus. I don't know what you got for Christmas, but all we have going for us is Jesus. If Jesus isn't the one building our lives, and I can't say it any more clearly than this, then our lives will fall apart If Jesus isn't the one building our lives, then our lives will fall apart. Oh, we'll have a good run. We'll be coasting, it'll be great. But eventually, inevitably, our lives will fall apart. If Jesus isn't the one building the church, then our witness for Christ and his kingdom will be in vain. And worse, it will be false. And that is why so many are leaving the church. Because they're not compelled, interested, they're in fact disgusted and turned off by what we're trying to build. And that's not what the church is supposed to be about, what we want to build. The church is about what God is building in and through us. And when we ask ourselves, when we make decisions about the church, and we've got a big one coming up about whether to go to a combined service, and I'm I'm letting this out here right now to to go to one service. It's interesting in those survey results, everybody, everybody is coming at what they want to build, what I want. No one in that survey said, and I was praying for it and looking for it, you know what? All that matters to me is what is Jesus building at grace? That's the question. What is God building in and through us? Christmas isn't over yet, but we're starting to put everything away. Some of us are a little bit farther ahead, but we're gonna get there eventually. Christmas will eventually reach its 12 days, but the key is we don't want to make sure we're putting away Jesus. Because God didn't come down in Christ just for a quick visit, a brief chat, or the annual family get-together. That's kind of how we treat Jesus at Christmas time. Like he's like the annual visit with family. Okay, thank you for coming. You can go now. 
God came down in Christ to tear down the walls between us, the obstacles that divide us from him, from ourselves, from each other. God came down in Christ to rebuild and renovate our fractured lives, our broken world into something magnificent, stronger than death and reflecting the glory of a love, his love that cannot be conquered. God came down in Christ to move into the neighborhood, to take up residence in our lives by building his house, his home, not only with us, but in us.